Welcome to the Trinity Western Chapel Podcast. As a vibrant part of life at Trinity Western University, Chapel creates opportunities for us to engage with God's story of redemption in Jesus Christ through His Word, prayer, and worship. We're glad you're listening and hope that you encounter God's heart for you and the world. Greetings. My name is John Sundara and I am a discipleship pastor in Dallas, Texas at an Episcopalian or Anglican church called Church of the Incarnation. And I'm so honored and filled with gratitude to be invited to share and preach at your chapel. Let me begin with a word of prayer from an ancient prayer from around the time of the Reformation from the Anglican reformer, Thomas Cranmer. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have promised through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. In one of my seminary classes, I remember us discussing the canonicity of Esther. Now, canonicity is just a fancy way of asking, why is the book of Esther in the Bible? This may seem like an odd question. After all, at chapel, we have been preaching and teaching through this book because we believe that every word, every jot, every tittle is inspired by the third person of the Trinity, that is the Holy Spirit. However, the word Adonai, the Hebrew word Adonai, the Hebrew word Elohim, or even the Tetragrammaton or Yahweh, all these divine words which we translate in our Bibles as God or Lord God or Lord, none of these words appear even once in the book of Esther. So can we really say that the Holy Spirit inspired this book if he doesn't even reference God himself? In fact, the book of Esther has a bit of a bumpy history in the church. For example, church historians tell us that many early church fathers, like Clement and Augustine, they wrote extensive commentaries on Esther. However, as anti-Semitism began to rear its ugly head in Europe and much of Western Christianity, Western Christians, by and large, they had little to no interest in the book of Esther, which they perceived was almost too Jewish for them. Now, the book of Esther was still read aloud in their church services. And of course, various Middle Eastern and Eastern Orthodox churches and even African Coptic churches, they didn't really have this problem that European Christianity or Western Christianity had. However, during the Reformation, other than Martin Luther, who apparently wished that the book of Esther did not exist at all, all the other reformers, say they saw a lot of spiritual value in the book of Esther. So, for example, we know that John Calvin wrote an extensive commentary on the book of Esther. And similarly, the Anglican reformer, Thomas Cranmer, he included Esther 
in his list of Old Testament canonical books and in his yearly Bible reading plan called the Daily Office. Cranmer went on to explain that we can be saved by reading and hearing the Word of God, which includes the book of Esther, even though, ironically, this book does not even mention the word God. So if, if this book doesn't mention God, how can we hear God's voice and believe in God and be saved by God? That's the question. Well, there are two steps to this process. There are two steps to this process that the church has done throughout the ages to deal with a book like Esther. And the first step is to learn to read the book of Esther like a first century BC or a first century AD God-fearing Jew would have read the book of Esther. So this would be very much like how Jesus himself would have read the book or how his first apostles and disciples would have read the book. Remember that Jesus was a God-fearing Jew. He was circumcised by his parents on the eighth day, as Luke notes for us in his gospel, like any God-fearing Jew, a Jewish male of that day and age would have. He celebrated the Passover every year religiously, like any God-fearing Jewish male would have. And he memorized and understood the Torah. We see this quite evidently, for example, in Matthew's gospel. So we have to learn to read Esther in the same way that Jesus and his first apostles and disciples as they would have read the book of Esther. But that's just the first step. I said there were two steps. The second step is to read the book of Esther like a first century BC or even a first century AD God-fearing Jew would have read the book of Esther, like Jesus himself or like the first apostles and disciples. Now hold on a second. I sounded like I just repeated myself. Don't step one and step two sound identical to each other? What is going on? Well, remember that Jesus is far more than just a first century AD agrarian Jewish male. Jesus is both fully man and fully God. One of the oldest summaries of the faith, the Nicene Creed, describes Jesus as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, co-eternal and pre-existent with his Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, of one being and substance with his Father. Jesus is God. So we ought to be reading Esther with the full identity of Jesus' fully human, fully divine personhood and his ministry in this fully human, fully divine personhood with that in mind. This is how Jesus himself knew himself. And this is how his apostles and disciples knew him and believed him to be. So we ought to be reading Esther with the belief that even though this book does not mention the word God, somehow this book reveals to us the word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ himself. And in seeing the word made flesh, the word of God made flesh in this book, in this paper and ink book called Alter the Word of God, you and I are bound to be transformed 
and made into Christ's image. So our goal today is to approach the text with faith. Approach it with faith, believing that the Word of God is revealed in the Word of God. And when we encounter Him, we will be transformed. So when we approach the text with faith, there are many different lessons that we learn. But specifically for our passage today from Esther chapter 9, verses 20 to 28, I want to draw out for us two very specific lessons. Two lessons. And those two lessons are, first, a unified people of God is unstoppable against the schemes of the enemy. That's the first lesson. Second, a unified people of God is excited for the flourishing of the poor. Let me repeat those. First, a unified people of God is unstoppable against the schemes of the enemy. Second, a unified people of God is excited for the flourishing of the poor. You will notice that these two points, these two lessons, they all hinge on a unified people of God. And each of them has an action, something for the unified people of God to do together. And we see this in the very first verses of today's selected passage from Esther, Esther chapter 9, verse 20. Esther chapter 9, verse 20, it begins this way. And Mordecai recorded these things. Well, let's pause right there. Mordecai recorded these things. Well, what things? It's the things that we have been hearing from Esther chapter 9 verse 1 to Esther chapter, uh, sorry, from Esther chapter 1 verse 1 to Esther chapter 9. It's all these things about Esther being a Jewish maiden living in exile, hand chosen by King Ahasuerus, and how Mordecai wouldn't commit idolatry and bow down to Haman the Agagite, and how Haman plotted genocide against the entire Jewish people because of his narcissism and how Esther intervened on behalf of her people and secured their safety in all of the Persian Empire. These things, these are all familiar things. We've been talking about these things for the past few weeks now. But these things Mordecai recorded. And in case the reader of the Bible at this point has forgotten what these things are, verses 23 to 28 in chapter 9, goes on to summarize these things, just in case we forgot. But verse continues, Mordecai recorded these things, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus near and far. All the Jews in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus' empire. Now remember from Esther chapter 1, verses 1, we are talking about 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. How many provinces does Canada have? And how big is Canada? Well, imagine that, but several magnitudes more. 127 provinces from India all the way down to Ethiopia. For all intents and purposes, we are talking about the full geographical extent of the world's greatest superpower of that time. And somehow, 
by some miracle. One man, Mordecai, and this one man's letter makes it to the hundreds upon thousands of Jews living across 127 provinces from India all the way down to Ethiopia. That should strike us as completely remarkable. Why? Well, let's back up several hundred years in Israel's history. Remember that in the time of the judges, we're going way back. Remember that in the time of the judges, the kingdom of Israel was made up of 12 warring tribes and factions. They were filled with bitter infighting, division. They almost annihilated themselves. And they were on the verge of being completely overrun by Israel's enemies. The Philistines, the Midianites, the Ammonites, the Moabites. You remember the story. Yet, what happens is that God raises up David and later David's son, Solomon. And both David and Solomon, both these kings, they unify the tribes of Israel into one unified kingdom. And during the reign of David and Solomon, no enemy is able to defeat the Israelites, none at all. But we know how that story ends. Solomon succumbs to idolatry. The kingdom of Israel is ripped apart from the Davidic dynasty. And Israel soon devolves again into bitter infighting and division. And once again, a divided Israel, just like in the time of the judges, but this time now, a post-king Israel, a divided Israel, stands no chance against her enemies. And predictably, they're conquered and taken away into exile. However, however, in the book of Esther, we see the Jews of Israel again as one unified people of God. Something happened, something miraculous happened. Something brought them together even when they were in exile. And that thing that brought them together even when they were in exile was the real and serious threat of being wiped out forever from the face of the earth. I want you to consider this. What if the Jewish diaspora of that time, when they read Mordecai's letter, they discarded it? They fought and disagreed amongst themselves. They quarreled amongst themselves. Some of them took it seriously. Some of them didn't take it seriously. Some of them disagreed with the tone or the grammar or whatever. What if they had basically disagreed amongst themselves when they read Mordecai's letter? They would have been wiped out. Okay, what if they had been wiped out and there was no Jewish people? Where would you and I be today? Remember, if there was no Jewish people, then there would be no Jesus. Because remember, Jesus is the prophesied descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, who is named Israel. Jesus is also the prophesied son of David and Solomon. You see, if there was no Israelite people, if there was no Jewish people, if they were totally wiped out, 
then we would have no Jesus, who is fully Jewish man and fully God. And therefore, there would be no salvation for us Gentiles. There would be, you and I would still be dead in our sins. Yet, however, God in his mercy, God in his providence, he brought back the dispersed Jewish people back together again as one unified people of God in the face of a great threat to their existence. And this unified people of God were unstoppable against the schemes of their enemies. We cannot, we cannot underestimate the power of the unified people of God. You know, Jesus in the Gospels, he describes the devil, the evil one, Satan, as the enemy of the people of God. And do you know what one of the greatest threats to the church, the people of God, is today? One of the greatest threats to the church today is our disunity. Our disunity. You see, in the book of Esther, the devil, through Haman, he tried to wipe out the people of God in one sweeping genocidal move. One sweeping genocidal move. He tried to wipe them all out. And he failed. He failed miserably. But the devil is a cunning and shrewd creature. He has become smarter since then. He has learned from his tactical mistake. He has learned from his strategic failure. And you know what he has done since then? He has now opted for the long game. His strategy is to keep us, the people of God, us Christians, complacently disunited for over several generations so that we can slowly become weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker over time. We are weak in proclaiming the gospel to the nations. We are weak in seeing miracles in our own time. We are weak even against our own temptations and sins like pornography, vice, consumerism, materialism, individualism. We are weak in our spiritual maturity and strength as a church. Why? Because we do not live as one church. There is strength in unity and numbers, but we have forgotten this. So what will become of future generations of the church? What kind of faith will you and I pass on to the next generations? What will our church look like before Jesus returns? You know, the Bible assures us that when Jesus returns, the church will most certainly be presented to him as his bride, washed and waiting, strong and pure. But who will be counted in that number? You know, even Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 21. He says, Father, I pray that they, they being us, you and I, his disciples, Father, I pray that they would be one, just as Father, you and I are one. But he doesn't stop there. He continues that we would be one 
so that why so that the world may believe he says i'm quoting him that you father have sent me jesus wants us to be one so that the world may believe that for god so loved the world that he sent his only son so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life jesus wants us to be one so that the world around us may believe that he truly is from god that he's not just another prophet or another nice guy but that he is god the son of god and the book of esther teaches us that a unified people of god is unstoppable against the schemes of the enemy because god wants the world to know who he truly is and if we are unified we will be unstoppable against the schemes of the enemy that's the first lesson the first lesson is that the unified people of god is unstoppable against the schemes of the enemy so that the world will know who god truly is and who his son jesus truly is that's the first lesson but there's also a second lesson the book of esther teaches us that a unified people of god is excited for the flourishing of the poor we see this towards the end of esther chapter 9 verse 22 after mordecai sends out his letter he obliges the jews uh, the jewish people to celebrate their redemption on the 14th and 15th days of the month of adar there's something significant there that i will cover later on he obliges them to celebrate the redemption on the 14th and 15th days of the month of adar and so they celebrate their redemption with gladness and feasting with giving gifts and food to each other it sounds a lot like <laughs> it sounds a lot like christmas if you ask me but this is where it gets a little bit more interesting the jews are also obliged by mordecai's letter to do one more thing and it's at the end of verse 22 and what is that thing it's to give gifts to the poor it's to give gifts to the poor now a caveat when the bible says poor in this context it isn't a metaphor for those who are spiritually poor or poor in spirit rather when the bible says poor in this context it's talking literally about those who are poor socioeconomically those in poverty those who have little to no money those who are homeless those who live on the streets these poor are to receive gifts from the unified people of god but this is where it becomes slightly interesting it's not just that the jews were to give gifts to other poor jewish people alone it's to give gifts to any poor person from any culture or any ethnic group living in the 121 provinces of the persian empire from india all the way to ethiopia in fact if we were to take the book of esther seriously we would realize that some of these poor people because of haman's edict from a few chapters earlier some of these poor people they were deputized and licensed and armed to slaughter the jews yet the jews were instructed to give gifts even to these poor people even to these poor citizens of the empire why 
Because in the ancient Jewish laws of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, it states that the Israelites were to treat the poor in their midst with great honor because the Israelites too once were poor. Even worse than just being poor, the Israelites once were slaves. They were slaves in Egypt. But the Lord redeemed them out of slavery. He prospered them in the promised land. Similarly, during the time of Esther, the Lord redeemed the Jewish people living in the Persian Empire under the threat of genocide, and he prospered them. So they too were to seek the flourishing of the poor in their midst. You see, the, the poor... The poor are made in the image of God. In the same way that you and I are made in the image of God. And Colossians tells us that Christ is the image of God. Colossians chapter 1. Christ is the image of God. So every time we treat the poor with contempt, we are treating their maker and our maker with contempt. And we're also treating Jesus with contempt. And when we treat our Maker, when we treat Jesus with contempt, we are ultimately treating ourselves with contempt. To treat our Maker with contempt is to treat ourselves with contempt. And so what we see here is that to treat the poor with contempt is to ultimately treat ourselves with contempt, which is a self-defeating action. It is a self-defeating action. But to love the poor, to love the poor because our love for them flows out from knowing and believing that God loves us because once we were poor. So we love the poor because we know that God loves us and we ought to love ourselves the way that he loves us. And when we love ourselves in the way that he loves us, we can't help but love other human beings that share the same image with us. We can't help but love other poor people who are in the same image as us because we know that once we and I, we too were once were poor. We were slaves to sin and death. But God redeemed us out of sin and death and he placed us in his eternal kingdom. So we ought to love the poor. We ought to love the poor in the same way that God loves the poor. But let me take this one step further. In a post-Christian, secular society, much like Vancouver, most secular agnostics care little to nothing about what kinds of Christians we are. Are we Baptists? Are we Presbyterians? Are we Lutherans? Are we Anglicans? Are we Catholics? Are we non-denominational, Alliance, Mennonite, Evangelical? They don't care. They don't care. All they see is that faith, the gospel, is irrelevant to their lives and the world around them. That's all they see. is something that a few people believe in that is totally irrelevant to the rest of the world. But imagine if all of us Christians, all of us God-fearing Baptists and Presbyterians, 
God-fearing Lutherans and Anglicans, God-fearing Catholics and non-denominational and Alliance and Mennonite and Evangelical. Imagine if we, all of us, if we united to form a coalition to love and serve the poor in our midst. What kind of gospel witness would that be? Wouldn't that be the most powerful and amazing gospel witness in our world? You see, a unified people of God is excited for the flourishing of the poor in their midst because it understands that once we too were poor, but now we have been redeemed from sin and death and we have been brought into God's kingdom. A unified people of God is excited for the flourishing of the poor in their midst because it understands the glory the magnificence, the worship that this brings to our God from a people that are yet to know him and know his face. A unified people of God that is excited to serve the poor is in many ways sharing the gospel in a city that does not know our Lord. And so my exhortation for you today it's to seek to be a unified people of God. Seek to be a unified people of God who cannot be stopped by the schemes of the enemy. Seek to be a unified people of God who is excited for the flourishing of the poor. Seek to be a unified people of God that brings our great God all the glory that he is worthy of. Now, there's a third lesson that the book of Esther reveals to us, and that lesson is about our sanctification. But that is a sermon for another day. In the meantime, let me pray for us. And let me pray for us that God would unite us so that we can be his people who are unstoppable against the enemy and that we would be his unified people who are excited to love and serve the poor. Let me pray for us. Gracious and heavenly Father, you are a great God above all gods. You are a great king above all kings. Father, you alone are God alone with your Son and your Holy Spirit. And you are not a God who is divided. You are one God, three persons, united, fully united. Help us, O God, to live as you live, united with our brothers and sisters. Help us to be unstoppable against the schemes of the enemy. Help us to be excited about loving and serving the poor in our midst so that our world will know who you are. Our world will worship you and fall down at your feet saying that you alone are God and there are no other gods amongst us. We pray and ask all this, Heavenly Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you are blessed and be encouraged in your faith life. Chapel happens every Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 11 a.m. in the gymnasium or online at livechapel.twu.ca. You can also stay connected with us by following at TWChapel. Until next time, much love.